Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph, teaching pastor here at Wayfarers Christian Church, and we are moving chapter by chapter, both through the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Romans. Today, we are on chapter 20 of the book of Deuteronomy, making our way slowly through this book. We are in a section that is focused specifically on laws for how to treat the neighbors around the people of Israel when they get into the land of Canaan. How are they to handle their neighbors? How are they to love their neighbors as themselves? In this chapter, we're looking at how that works out as far as military warfare is concerned. How are the Israelites to be different as far as military warfare? So come along for the ride as we discover how the Israelites were supposed to treat each other and their neighbors when they went to war. So we've been diving chapter by chapter through the book of Deuteronomy, and we've reached chapter 20. Chapter 20 is a shorter chapter, so hopefully this won't be as long as some of the other chapters that we've been working through. Um, In particular, there will be a huge focus on um, conquest, military conquest. This is, um, in some ways, a... I would call it an addendum of sorts to some of the Holy War chapters that we've already worked through. Um, It is always important to remember, I've said this in some of the Holy War chapters that we've uh, talked about already, that uh, the Holy War chapters were very much set for one specific people group, Um, well, really seven, um, but set for a very specific situation in the land of Canaan with these seven people groups um, and did not apply to pretty much any other type of military conquest that Israel was supposed to do um, for the rest of the peoples as they were in the land and living in the land. And that's what we're going to talk about with this chapter. We're going to actually see how Deuteronomy um, wants the Israelites to handle um, the Uh, conquests um, that they might have once they are settled down in the land, Um, which is really interesting. Um, Just on the outset, um, there will be some difficulties here because it does kind of show that there was um, even a kind of moral understanding um, of how war should be handled in the Old Testament, and it shows that um, there is kind of a difference between um, even what the orders are for God um, handling the Canaanites that are currently living in the land that the Israelites are supposed to handle, and then um, uh, how they are to handle any other kind of neighboring regions around the region after they're living there. Some people might find that a problem. I find that actually comforting in some ways. Uh, I find this chapter to be a very comforting chapter overall, um, especially because in um, many uh cultures of the time period, this was not um, normal um, to have this kind of grace and mercy um, that we're going to see in how their military conquests um, uh, were supposed to be. Um, And so it's a really interesting point. It's also interesting to point out that the um, 
Israelites of this time period, if you remember back to Deuteronomy 9, are no more holy or devout or righteous than uh, any of the other nations that they're supposed to um, wipe out. Um, And uh, one of the points that Deuteronomy 9, which we talked about in that chapter, um, brings up is the idea that um, the seven nations that are to be completely wiped out are uh, very, very much on the, um, uh, like in a really bad relationship with God, I guess I would say God has a very, um, uh, judgmental attitude, attitude towards them, um, for many of the sins that they've committed. And so these seven nations are, are very much almost set apart for destruction as opposed to the normal law of the land for how the Israelites are supposed to treat their neighbors. And so we'll get to see that. We'll find some uncomfortable uh, parts of this um, chapter, even though this is more of a merciful chapter about how war is to be operated. Um, There are always going to be things that um, we may think we could do better in our time period today. And I do think it's always helpful to remember that... um, even the Old Testament itself begins to develop the idea of war um, to the point that by the time you get to Isaiah 2, um, which was the second episode we ever did, um, you'll find that uh, the prophets are um, prophesying that one day there will be no more war at all uh, and that ultimately God's entire plan is to move away from war as an option. And so don't read this um Uh, divorced from the context of the entire Old Testament, um, which is uh, gradually moving away from this kind of way of treating sin um, or way of treating um, nations even. Um, There is always um, a sense of progression, I think we can say, with the Old Testament story um, and where they start with and where they end with. And I think you can even find that in Paul's interpretation of the Old Testament in the book of Galatians, for instance. Uh, We talked about that where um, Paul sees the Old Testament law um, as a guardian of sorts that was there for a time, and uh, now we're moving on to um, something new with um, Jesus um, kind of at the forefront of what it means to live and to be. And so um, hopefully that helps if this is uncomfortable in any shape or form um, as we dive into this. But I'd also want to bring out several of the um, really wise teachings that are still here. Like I said, um, I'm not a full um well, this was in the Old Testament, and we're no longer going to do this, so this chapter doesn't matter anymore. I still think that there are wisdom points that you can pull from these passages, and uh, that's our that's my hope today is to be able to bring those out um, and really talk about some of the things that um, uh, still could be applied for our life today. So um, with that being said, um, let's go ahead and dive into the chapter. When you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours... Do not be afraid of them, because the Lord your God will bring you up out of Egypt, will be with you. When you are about to go into battle, the priest shall come forward and address the army. He shall say, Hear, Israel, today you are going into battle against your enemies. Do not be faint-hearted or afraid. Do not panic or be terrified by them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. The officers shall say to the army, Has anyone built a new house and not yet begun to live in it? Let him go home, or he may die in battle and someone else may live, begin to live in it. 
Has anyone planted a vineyard and not begun to enjoy it? Let him go home, or he may die in battle and someone else may enjoy it. Has anyone become pledged to a woman and not married her? Let him go home, or he may die in battle and someone else marry her. Then the officers shall add, Is anyone afraid or faint-hearted? Let him go home, so that his fellow soldiers will not become disheartened too. When the officers have finished speaking to the army, they shall appoint commanders over it. When you march up to attack a city, make its people an offer of peace. If they accept and open their gates, all the people in it shall be subject to forced labor and shall work for you. If they refuse to make peace and they engage you in battle, lay siege to that city. When the Lord your God delivers it into your hand, put to the sword all the men in it. As for the women, the children, the livestock, and everything else in the city, you may take these as plunder for yourselves, and you may use the plunder the Lord your God gives you from your enemies. This is how you are to treat all the cities that are at a distance from you and do not belong to the nations nearby. However, in the cities of the nations the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them. The Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hevites, and Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. When you lay siege to a city for a long time, fighting against it to capture it, do not destroy its trees by putting an axe to them, because you can eat their fruit. Do not cut them down. Are the trees people that you should besiege them? However, you may cut down trees that you know are not fruit trees and use them to build siege works until the city at war with you falls. All right, so uh, we open up with um, some instructions about fear. And this chapter, in many ways, is uh, working on the concept of fear, um, working on how, uh, as a wisdom principle, um, people that uh, live a life of fear um, will not be as reliable as people that are brave and courageous. Um, this is a big point in this chapter. You'll see um, there is this really interesting um, kindness towards um, people that are enlisted in warfare, um, specifically the Israelites, um, which is also contrasted pretty harshly with the harsh treatment of their neighbors when they are fighting militarily, which we'll get to um, in the later point of this chapter. But um, I wanted to start really by kind of setting the stage here by imagining what this might look like today when we don't necessarily um, do warfare all that often, but can imagine this is almost like a teaching principle of sorts. Um, and one of the things I was thinking about with this is how often fear dominates our way of um, doing things. Um, I was actually having a conversation with our senior pastor and our worship leader the other day about fear and how often fear tends to um, disguise itself as wisdom. Um, that's one of the things you'll often hear is um, that uh, I'm not being afraid, I am being wise. Um, and there is a very, very hard uh, line uh, in the sand between those two that uh, is very difficult to discern. Um, it's very difficult to um, 
find when fear has crept up into our lives and uh, made us try and understand things um, in a way that uh, seems completely logical and fair and uh, something that should be considered um, even as a wise choice of action, um, but is ultimately just fear, um, just the brain tricking you into making you think it's a logical decision when really it's just the brain um, having an anxiety attack in many cases. Um, something that I've noticed with this, like to use this example, um, which is military strength, right? And the fear even of going out into battle and dying, right? That's that's kind of the overarching like um, uh, point of this entire chapter is um if there are any people that have a fear of death, um, what's interesting is that the rule for this army is that they're not to fight, um, that they're to be sent back home. Um, and it starts really at the outset with um, the antithesis to that, which is a priest. And we've talked about priests a few chapters ago, how the Levites were supposed to be priests and what that meant for them and their people group and how um, they sort of like worked as like pastorally in the lives of the community almost every day of their life. And they had way less of a, of a sense of personal ownership and um, instead were um, relying on the Lord for almost all of what they um, ate and what um, they really were relying on the laws that the Lord gave to the people to make sure that they were taken care of. But here we see one of their pastoral roles is to lift up and encourage and to, um, uh, intentionally speak against fear. Um, that's one of the things that um, these first verses open up with um, is this rule uh, of sorts, not of sorts, but just this rule um, for a priest to say, Hear, Israel, today you are going to battle against your enemies. Do not be faint hearted and afraid. Um, do not panic or be terrified uh, by them. And his point for why they're not supposed to be afraid, why it's not a good thing to fear this death that you might. Um, encounter as a fighter in an army that's, you know, using military um, warfare to kill other people. And um, there's always the risk of being killed yourself when you're fighting against another army. Um, why they're not to be afraid is because the Lord is with them. Um, and, he, and he is actually going to fight um, through them. Um, and uh, a part of this priest's um, encouragement is just to remember what God has done for them in the past through many of the conquests um, through Egypt and through their wanderings in the wilderness and to remember that God has always shown up for um, this people, um, which is a very hard thing. It's a very hard thing to uh, transform your mind to the point that um, you have to almost relinquish self-control and self-wisdom of a sort for God's wisdom. I really think that's the key to understanding fear in our lives is there is a, you know, um, there's been a lot of scientific studies that, you know, I haven't done a huge amount of research on, um, but I know a little bit <laughs> to be dangerous, I guess I would say. And one of the things they've pointed out is that fear is actually like a very um, uh, good thing for a uh, animal essentially like fear is the 
driving force of how to get away from harm and from danger. Um, and you know, you, you can see this even if you're walking late at night and you see like a deer, um, the first thing it'll do when it notices you is it'll run away. Usually it doesn't stick around when it sees you. Why? Because it knows that like you are a scary thing that could potentially cause it harm. And so the safest thing for it is to run away from it. Um, and, you know, a lot of people could look at that and say, well, a deer is being very wise there, right? Like it's being um, aware that humans have the propensity to have shotguns and ammo and uh, the ability to pull a trigger and to end its life immediately. And so a deer is being self um uh, aware and being not self-aware, but is being precautious enough. Um, and knowing that like, this is a dangerous situation. I should get away from the situation. What's interesting though, is that the Bible seems to have a completely different context for fear and how we are to handle it. Um, especially in this chapter where, um, the focus is not as much on, um, living as animals, for humans, but living as, um, the bridge between, um, heaven and earth, basically living as images of God, um, living as people that, um, have a deep relationship with God and are always remembering that at one point in time we lived in the garden of Eden where all things were safe and secure and there was no need for any kind of fear at all. Um, and so the idea here I think is, um, as people that are specifically chosen by God, um, they're to live out a life that is reminiscent of that pre-fall human state where um, there was no fear. And they are to remember that um, God is the one that is their savior. Um, they're one that is their protector. They're one that is the source of their safety, not their own human wisdom, basically. And that is a wisdom principle that um, is very, very hard even today to live out. Um, you know, we've talked about that a lot on this podcast, um, specifically related to finances. We've talked about that, um, but we haven't really talked about it as much when it comes to safety or security, um, even how um, we may um, use certain items like you know, armaments and weapons as a sense of security. And we take our um, sense of security in the fact that we may own a weapon in our home um, or that we may um, even like take a sense of security in how we've arranged our place that we are located, right? Like we've specifically purchased a plot of land um, that's segregated from more dangerous areas, right? Um, and there's a lot of human wisdom in that, right? There's a lot of human um, uh, carefulness um, that I do think is motivated by fear, ultimately. Um, and, the, and the idea here is, and you'll notice there is no real... Um, there is no real condemnation of that in this passage, right? Um, there is no um, 
attempt to judge them as sinners if they are the types of people that are afraid. Um, but there is a sense in which they are to be segregated from the rest of the people that are not afraid, right? That is what this passage is really getting at, um, is if there are people in this army that are like that, that have this sense of panic, um, this sense of self-harm, this sense of uh, acting more animal than human, um, they are to be left at home. <laughs> um, and uh, the people that don't have that sense of uh, fear are the ones that are to remain, which in some senses is very counter what you would do with an army even. Like the idea of like, you know, you want every body you can get so that you have more numbers at the end of the day. So if there are a lot of people that die on both sides, you'll still win because you have more bodies to cover up the deaths that might occur in a battle. Um, and, and it's interesting that, uh, the old Testament laws seem to be in direct conflict with that and tend to use a, a fighting technique in which there are always fewer, um, so that, uh, you can show off the power of God more when the fewer uh, end up conquering over the greater. Um, I think of the story in Judges with Gideon where he has only 300 fighting men, um, and that story uh, is one of the biggest moments in the book of Judges because he's able to conquer an army way larger than him, and God even goes so far as to like um, whittle down the amount of men that end up uh, saying they're going to fight for Gideon. It wasn't originally 300. It was more like a thousand or however many. I can't remember off the top of my head, but it was a lot more than that. And God was like, mm, there's too many people here. I want less than this. So let me, let me start weeding out a few of the people. Um, and it is, it's a fascinating thing that um, God often puts us in situations in which they are very unwise from a human perspective, very unwise from a human perspective. And uh, yeah, nobody in their right mind would try and attack a 10,000 military army um, with 300 people. <laughs> um, that this just doesn't work with the math. Um, and uh, it, it is something that uh, I do think like requires a bit of mental um, otherness, I guess I'll say mental, um, belief in something outside of your own understanding of how things work in the world, um, and how you've always done things and what your mom or dad even taught you growing up as the wisdom principles of life. There is a sense in which sometimes those become moments where God actually will say something different than those things. And there becomes a conflict in that moment where you have to really decide, are you going to listen to the voice of the world and the voice of how things have always been done and the voice of what is safe and secure? Or are you going to listen to the voice of God that's calling you to go into unsafe situations, maybe very intentionally, but rest in the fact that it is God that's calling you and that God is going to take care of you. Um, that is really at the heart of this whole section here. I do find it very endearing. Some of these, um, starting in verse five, there is a huge point of <laughs> also the fact that um, the people that are risking death should not be people that have some 
immediate joy that they're losing out on enjoying. Um, that is something that is very beautiful to this passage where um, it gives three different scenarios. It gives a scenario of someone that's just built a house and then just gets conscripted into the army and is willing to fight but hasn't been able to live in the house and enjoy it yet. Um, someone that's just planted a vineyard but hasn't been able to enjoy the wine from that vineyard um, at all. And then someone that has just pledged to become married to a woman, so this would be like in the engagement, is just become engaged to a woman, and then is conscripted to the army. Um, Those three scenarios, um, they actually say that if in any of those circumstances where you haven't been able to enjoy um, being married, you haven't been able to enjoy um, your vineyard, and you haven't been able to enjoy your house, um, you're not allowed to fight. (laughs) You got to go home and enjoy life for a bit. Um, enjoy what God has given you. Um, and they see that as like a very valuable thing for men in life to enjoy things and not just to be working or fighting all the time. Um, that there is a time period in which they're supposed to rest and enjoy life. Um, and, uh, yeah, like it, it is a very, very, um, endearing quality to this whole law that um, specifically they have allocations for these kinds of men. And again, this is going to reduce the numbers of the fighting men. Um, If you're allowing every man the opportunity to um, uh, go home if they have a new house or a new vineyard or a new um, marriage that's about to approach, like, you know, like that is (laughs) like that's going to reduce the numbers again. And, uh, it's a part of this whole thing is the people that were, are left are not going to be looking at the numbers. They're going to be looking at the fact that God is going to fight with them. That's the ideal at any rate. And I really, really do believe that like having that as a wisdom principle throughout our lives, there are really two wisdom principles there. Um, one is that, um, while there may be a lot of battles that need to be fought for, Christianity, you may not be the one that needs to fight those battles right now. You may be the person that um, has just a new opportunity to enjoy life and you have a season in your life where you just need to rest and enjoy that period of your life. That's a wisdom principle to take. And then the other one is really that harder one, which is how are you living wisdom how is wisdom worked out in your life? It is, is it human wisdom or is it God's wisdom? And really beginning to understand the difference between those two wisdoms and understanding that like God's wisdom oftentimes goes against human wisdom and what human wisdom really at the end of the day looks like is it looks like fear. Um, and really resting in the fact that we are not supposed to be afraid Um, like the rest of the world, like the rest of animals, like the rest of the nations will be afraid. Um, But instead, we are to take heart um, and have this tremendous courage that we are fighting um, with God at our backs and always taking care of us and always being our Savior. Um, That's a really important important two wisdom points to take from these early um, passages. The, the hard part is always um, when we get to verse 10 where we start to talk about how they are to um, take care of other um, uh, nations and what's their um, battle strategies and what is their um, diplomatic 
procedures. Um, what's interesting is that um, apart from the seven nations, um, we see starting uh, with verse 10, any other nation other than those seven nations that are in the land of Canaan currently, um, they're to first make an offer of peace. So they are to try and see if uh, they can work out some kind of deal when they are uh, attacking a city so that no death might happen, um, which is really, really um, uh, kind even in this time period. Um, the, the thing that makes it less kind is that if they do accept the offer of peace, it's not just that they get to live among the Israelites, but they do become slaves um, and they do uh, ha- are forced to work in forced labor um, for the people of Israel if they do agree to peace. Um, and again, I've talked about this with um, the topic of slavery before in the Old Testament, how slavery was different than um, uh, the uh, current concepts of slavery. Um, I talked about how um, it tended to be more um, uh, focused on um, the idea of living with another person and uh, how uh, the way that slavery has been envisioned in our culture and in our time period is always shaped by the fact that um, America has had such a cruel way of handling slavery in its history. And uh, not all cultures would have done it to that extreme. Um, And while I can say we don't really know how the Israelites treated their slaves, it could have been just as bad. Um, I do think that you can find currents of the laws of this time period that God gives the people um, that says that they were to be treated well, even if they are foreigners. Um, And there tends to be even a sense of judgment for people that treat them harshly. Um, You'll find there's a story in Solomon's um, time period in the book of uh, first Kings where um, it actually blames Solomon for treating the slaves too harshly um, and making them build all of these different, um, palaces and fortresses. And it takes such a point as to say that Solomon had almost become like Egypt, um, enslaving Israel. And so there is even in the old Testament, a condemnation of harsh treatment, even of these foreigner slaves. And it's something that I should have brought up when we first talked about, um, that, um, a few chapters ago. Um, but it is, it is still difficult to work through. Um, it's still something I talked about the issue there, um, is that we just want it to be completely abolished. Um, and that is not how the Bible handles it. Instead, it handles it by saying that, um, when it is done, you are to do it kindly. Um, and you are to do it, um, in a way that is, um, uh, always, um, taking care of the person and you're not to be a cruel master essentially. Um, which again, um, this is just their culture and their time period. And like I said there, we always have the, um, book of Philemon is a good, good example of a, where I think Paul is looking back at the history of the, um, uh, Jewish people when it comes to this whole issue and saying to a Gentile, um, who has a slave that has run away, um, that has become a Christian, um, implying many things about how this Gentile Christian should handle his slave. And in particular, there is an implied note in the book of Philemon that uh, he should be freed. Um, and that uh, while he doesn't outright come out and say it, I think he 
implies it quite heavy-handedly throughout that entire book. It's just one chapter, so it's an easy read, um, but it is a very encouraging book when it comes to how Paul seemed to see um, slavery and how how Christians ought to handle it. Um, all that aside, um, if they do not accept the um, forced labor option for peace, um, then they are to be uh, laid siege to. And when they're laid siege to, um, uh, they are uh, essentially allowed to kill any of the men, um, but they're not allowed to kill any of the women or the animals um, or anything else. Instead, they're to take that as their own. Um, Again, that is pretty par for the course of this culture and time period. Um, That is always way better of an option than what the Canaanites will have, which is the complete annihilation of all of the livestock and the women and the children, um, which again is a very hard thing to read in the earlier chapters of this book. Even Um, they are to be taken and um, they are uh, to essentially then um, go back to their lands after they have uh, plundered the city. Um, what's interesting about this is um, verses 16 and 17 talk about what I mentioned earlier is that this is this is a rule for once they've been established in the land and have completely destroyed the other seven nations, the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, um, Hivites, and Jebusites. Um, those nations are the nations that are um, uh, supposed to be um, completely destroyed. I said seven. It looks like it's actually six here. Um, but... Um, Yeah, there is an interesting focus on how, again, it's brought up that these nations are to be completely eliminated because if they are not, they will lead Israel astray. And that is exactly what happened because um, we may say, thankfully, even um, they did not destroy all of the um, peoples. As a matter of fact, they applied this um, policy to these six nations here um, and instead uh, made them to work in forced labor. And even Chronicles will mention that Solomon um, uh, forced the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, all of them, um, to work um, for building all of his different um, buildings that he was trying to build in his time period. And so it's implied there that, like, yeah, the Israelites never um, completely wiped them out and they were always still in the land. Um, and since they were always in the land, um, they did lead the people astray. And that is one of the reasons why um, you have the fall of Israel throughout the entirety of the Old Testament story is um, that they were constantly being led astray by all of these other uh, nationalities and their religions. And so the idea was to get rid of them, to keep that purity um, complete. And again, that's something that's all through the book of Deuteronomy is this focus on um, idolatry and how idolatry can lead you astray. And so the best thing to do is to remove idolatry from the um, table, essentially remove temptation from the table and to live in the land without that temptation. Um, Again, we've talked about that in other episodes, so I don't think I really need to rehash all of that. But again, um, that is part of a different stipulation than what um, we have above where um, they're more um, kind, I guess I would say um, by allowing um, the women and children to survive at least um, and making an offer of peace and um, 
even allowing the men a chance to live if they take that offer of peace. Um, all of these things we can see as a kindness of a sorts, even if it's still not far enough for the time period that we live in today. Um, the very end is interesting because it focuses specifically on uh, trees, um, which you might think very odd um, that uh, there is this um, focus specifically on how when they're laying siege to a city, um, they have a law for how they're to take care of trees. And this is actually something that I find a lot of richness in because um, if you remember the Garden of Eden story, there were a lot of trees there that bore fruit. Um, and uh they were part of how Adam and Eve lived and uh, did not have to work all that often um, is because like trees just grew fruit on them and they could have fruit quite regularly. Um, and there was this sense in which like um, a lot of the story of that time period is getting uh, re brought up here when it comes to um, when they're taking out a city um, the first thing you would do is you would find all the trees around the city and you would fell them all and then you would build siege ramps or you would build any kind of way to get up over the walls of the city so you could get your men over the walls and into the city and be able to conquer it right like that's common siege tactics but here they have this strict law not to take down any tree that puts out fruit because the idea is like you don't want to just completely make the land barren um, once you're done, you know, um, you treat the land respectfully. And that is something that comes up a lot in the whole story of like um, the uh, Old Testament is that um, the land is an ongoing character in all of the stories um, and they are to treat the land well. Um, and if they don't treat the land well, they will be punished for it. Um, and another thing too is just, the concept of um, being kind even to the nations later on that may be living in the land that are not them or them um, and their ancestors even like uh, it is always better to have a tree exist that's been bearing fruit for a long period of time than a tree that's just been bearing fruit for like one or two years right um, the fruit usually gets sweeter it gets more rich um, it's endured many years um, you know I, I I know this actually because um, uh, we had an orchard in my backyard um, and I got to really enjoy fruit year after year um, and the fruit was always better on some trees years after years um, than other trees even. And you would always pick out like your favorite tree. Um, and so having like having like the options for multiple trees and multiple sweetnesses of fruit to be available is part of the whole living a human life. And I do think that there is kind of an analogy being brought up here because um, in the Old Testament in Genesis, there is a very deep connection between trees and humans and how both are um, in Genesis one, it describes trees as having um, fruit with the seed in it. And seed can be translated also as like descendants, right? Um, it's the only thing that's created in Genesis one that has the ability to basically um, regenerate itself through its descendants, right? Through its seed. And, uh, humans are also described that way, um, that they have a seed. Um, um, it's first brought up in um, uh, Genesis 3 when the woman has a seed um, that will um, crush the serpent, actually. Um, the serpent will bite its heel. Um, and there's this concept of how trees and humans will always have this very similar 
kind of way of going about things, even like talking about resurrection in the New Testament. Um, the idea of Paul will use the language of um, a seed being planted in the ground and then um, uh, the tree dying, but then the seed growing again. And that's kind of the concept of resurrection, right? Like there's a lot of different um ways that trees have always overlapped with humans even talking about like in galatians how um we have fruits of the spirit right um that's a very much treating humans as trees right like the concept of humans um, bearing fruit means that in some capacity we are trees bearing fruit and um so there is this always this concept of trees having this kind of sacred space that remind us of the Garden of Eden, that remind us of humans, um, that remind us of um, what God had intended for humans to be, what trees are still being. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of richness in this, especially even with the concept of the tree of life and how the tree of life had fruit that we could have tasted that would have let us live for all of life, you know, and even down to like, I mean, we could go so far as to say like trees end up becoming the big thing that like causes the whole um, reversal of um, the story of human failure, right? Like it was a tree that caused the failure of humans in some sense, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it was a tree that caused the renewal of all humanity through the tree that Christ was crucified on. And so there's a, there's a rich, there's a rich theology there of just how often trees kind of show up in the, in the story of the Bible as um, kind of playing a role alongside humans. And it's something I did want to bring up as just something to think about um, whenever you're walking around looking at trees and uh, seeing their beauty and their ma- majesty and uh, how often the Bible tends to uphold them as such and doesn't downplay them at all, but sees them as a very valuable resource and something that can really be offered to humans as a gift. Um, interestingly, though, um, you can kill any tree, um, cut down any tree, I guess I should say, um, that does not bear fruit, um, which also has some interesting you know, relationship to some things that Jesus does later on. He curses a fig tree that doesn't bear fruit. Um, and there's some interesting allegories there that I'm sure you could bring up and bring to the surface. There's a lot of wisdom in all of this that um, is very fascinating um, just at the end. And it, But again, I don't want us to lose the sight of like the true reason for bringing all this up, which is simply to say that um, you're to take care of the land around you when you're having a siege happen, right? Like you're not to be this kind of um, uh, bar barbarian kind of army that just like, um, sorry for using this word, but just kind of rapes the land, you know, um, you're to treat the land um, uh, really kindly. Um, and part of that is treating trees that have fruit very kindly and yeah you can i mean i I want you guys to imagine that this would have made things very difficult for a siege if you couldn't cut down a tree around the area Um, especially if like they're you know conquesting against a city that has a lot of fruit trees but not a lot of other trees and that would make it very difficult um and so it is it's just a very interesting law that i think deserves a good long meditation on how um god really does see fruit-bearing trees in this very special role, both for humans and I think even theologically. So um, maybe that maybe that uh, causes you to stop and think for a little bit about it. And uh, I, as always, whenever I do these episodes, I hope that there was something in them that inspired you, that brings you closer to God. And I pray that God brings you peace in your life and that you find as you go out throughout this week, 
um, that he is always with you and that he is your safety, um, that you do not have to fear things in this world because he is your security. Um, Thank you so much for tuning into this podcast, and we will be back in your feed again next week. Bye.